Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this privilege to be able to gather together one more time. And Lord, we just lift up the section of scripture that you have brought us to and the concepts, Lord, that are contained there. And just pray through your spirit, Lord, that they would be brought out and they would be made applicable to our lives. And Father, I pray that we would grasp onto them and we would glorify you by living a life, Father, that reflects these things. And so, Lord, these things are things that even angels desire to look into. And we have that privilege to do that tonight. So bless us, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. You turn and greet your neighbors. Greetings, neighborettes. <laughs> Good evening, all. Go ahead and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. As you're turning there, our Christmas schedule, just so um, nobody gets left out of what's going on or, or confused. We are going to be meeting again next Sunday night, which I believe is either the 8th or 9th. I don't remember. I think it's the 8th. But anyway, we're going to be meeting next Sunday night. and We'll be in our Second Chronicles study. We'll continue through the book verse by verse. Um, the week after that, so that's two weeks from tonight, we're having in the morning a play in our outreach. That night, so two weeks from tonight, we're going to be having at 5 o'clock an agape feast. We're going to be gathering together for a meal, and then we're going to be having a movie night as a church. So just so you're aware of that. And then the week after that, believe it or not, is Christmas is upon us. And so this is the day, the 23rd, the day before New Year's Eve. On the 23rd, we're moving our Sunday evening service to Monday evening, okay? So no evening service on the 23rd. So next week, the 8th, we're meeting as usual. 16th, Agape Feast and Movie Night. The 23rd, we are moving it to the 24th, and we're having our candlelight evening service on Christmas Eve, and we will be having a Christmas Day service as well, just so you're well-versed in what's going on. Second Chronicles chapter 6, King Solomon, Solomon's excited. This building project that God had laid upon Dad David's heart, he's been able to see it come to fruition. God has filled him and many others with his spirit. He has provided for him the building materials and the temple. The temple is completed. And we saw it last week in verse 13 of chapter 5, or two weeks ago, it says, Indeed it came to pass, when the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord, and when they had lifted up their voice with trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, and his mercy endures forever, that the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud. That cloud was the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what Solomon is so excited about, and that he's had his final inspection, if you will, after building this temple, and God has approved it with his presence. Now, it's setting a precedence here, very important, that we know and understand the presence of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit, which inhabits us, inhabits us after salvation. 
And so we've been equating this temple, this holy house that Solomon built in Jerusalem, to the temple, this holy house that God is causing us to be. What makes a house so holy? Well, again, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 12-16, through 16, it says, For no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides, or God dwells in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have, uh, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior to the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Then there's this place again in Solomon's day that Solomon had to be amazed because, again, you build this temple, and you want to honor God in what you do. And as you follow through in what God has called you to do, and God accepts it through, again, his presence. So equating the two, the temple of the Holy Spirit back then and today, our bodies, what sets them off is the presence of God dwelling inside, seen by the radiating glory of God. So there's God the Father. He sent his Son. It's what we're going to be celebrating this time of the year. He sent his Son because Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He sent his son so that we would know and understand God's word and understand God's plan from the foundations of the world. Realize the reason for the law and the necessity for the law and that the law brought us to the place of grace because we could not keep the law. And as Christ came and entered the world, this is the manifestation of the love of God to all of mankind. We're told in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so if you want to know God, you must know Christ. And so Christ came, but Christ was crucified. He died on that cross, but in order to show that he overcame the effects of sin, he raised, was raised from the dead on the third day. He ascended to heaven, and he said, when I ascend to heaven, I will send you the, the helper, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has been sent. It's the proof of our salvation. It's how we know that we're saved. We're told this very clearly in the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Says, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to his riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. And so upon salvation, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of me. How do I know that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of me? What does that even mean, that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of me? It's the presence of God that is with you. You've been marked as a child of God. And as you have been marked as a child of God, God dwells inside of me. And I know that because I recognize a spiritual gifting, that God has gifted me spiritually for the purpose of serving him as he has us all. I know that the Spirit dwells inside of me as I have a heart for the Lord and the things of the Lord. I have a heart to see people ministered to and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I have a heart for God's word, and as I feed on God's word, I am strengthened in the inner man as well, just as we all are. And so he has sent us this Holy Spirit so that we would know and that we would realize that we are Christ's. So this being the case, that temple, this body, there needs to be something very unique. And so we stand apart from all others as God now has caused us to be filled with his Spirit. 
You can build a church building. You can produce a life that is healthy and strong. But the only thing that sets it apart is God's glory. Is God's glory, His Holy Spirit, and a heart for God's people. So with all the people of Israel present, or at least represented, Solomon is dedicating this temple to the Lord dedicating this temple to the Lord so that people would come and they would understand, not knowing the concepts, as I just explained, as far as being sealed with the Spirit, but they would come and they would know that God is now dwelling in their capital, that God is with this people and God is with this nation. It was the great hope that we as a country had for a period of time until we've rejected God in so many different areas in so many different ways. But God built this nation strong. God built this nation, the United States of America, as a nation as no other that has ever existed. But now as we have moved away from God, our nation is not what it used to be. Well, Israel, as they're seeing this temple on the Temple Mount above everything else, they had to see it from miles away. As they came up to it, they had to realize that there's just something special, not just about this place, but about us as a people, because God has set his grace upon us and chosen to live amongst us. And then can you imagine you're worshiping and you're celebrating, and then all of a sudden the glory of the Lord fills that temple? It just had to be an overwhelming thing. And so the first thing that we're going to look at in this dedication ceremony is a declaration. Verses 1 through 11. Then Solomon spoke. Solomon obviously is king now. King David has passed away. Solomon's caused this, as I've said, this temple to be built. And now he speaks. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying, Since that day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe in Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. Yet I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son, who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David to sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have put the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with the children of Israel. Again, to the Jewish mind, the ark is that box with the cherubim on top of it and the commandments inside to the Jewish mind. That was the throne of God. For that ark to be brought into the temple, the idea is God is there and God is seated upon his throne. So Solomon's declaration of joy is basically built upon two things. What God has said that he would do and God doing what he said he would do. 
It's the remembrance that we have when we celebrate the communion meal, declaring that God did what he said he would do, that Christ came and he died upon the cross, and he died upon the cross for our sins. As we look at those communion elements, we need to see the intimacy of it all. That truly, as my God said these things were going to happen, looking at these things, studying these things, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through to the end of the Bible, we see that God was faithful. But also declaring what God said that he will do. Because again, the communion meal, just as surely as it looks in the past, it also looks in the future. And that we've been told to celebrate that communion meal until the Lord's return. When is the Lord returning? don't really know. Is he going to return in my life, in your lifetime? We don't know. But we look forward to it in anticipation. If it happens in our lifetime, praise God. If it doesn't, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Chuck Smith thought that it was going to happen in his lifetime, but it didn't. Is it going to happen in my lifetime? I hope so, but God's will be done in the matter. As I celebrate communion meal, I celebrate that he has taken care of my sins. He has set them as far as the east is from the west and has chosen to remember them no more. In the presence of God, I am looked upon as if I have never sinned and never am I not in the presence of God. It's because of that, not only do I have faith in God, but my hope is also in him looking for that future, that glorious time in the future. Maybe it's going to be tomorrow, maybe it'll be next week, next month, or maybe it's not going to be for another hundred years. I don't know. It doesn't matter. We just need to continue to gather together like we're doing tonight, to have a heart to worship and and to praise the Lord, to read God's word, to fellowship and to strengthen one another, to be there for each other. And as we are doing those things, we're doing the things that the Lord has commanded. We celebrate the communion meal once again to set our hearts right before the Lord. I encourage our church, when we're celebrating them, to remember first love. And what I mean by first love, do you remember the day that you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Remember the day that you realized the sinner that you were? Do you remember the day when it seemed like, well, for a moment there, because of my sins, there is no hope? But then you realized all of your hope is in Jesus Christ and the grace of God and the love that you had or you experienced from God as you realize the magnitude of what he has done. We can so easily, as I've stated many times, fall into routine. We can get busy doing church. That's what the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 was doing. They were doing a lot of good things, but he says this one thing I have against you, you've left your first love that we would be rooted and grounded before our first love, that we would embrace our first love, and that we would be a people who never let go. That when it comes time to worship, that we would consider. It's why we put the words up on the screen. Remember as a kid, when you would hear a song and you would sing along with it, and you would just kind of make the words up from whatever it sounded like that they were singing, not knowing really what they're singing, but just making things up. That doesn't work. That doesn't really fly in here. That we put the words on the screen so that you would be able to meditate on them and consider them and the things that you're singing would truly be an expression of your heart. There's no test here. We can't evaluate your heart. But just to know that your heart is is right with the Lord and just singing of the things that the Lord has done. There was a time that I got together with our worship leaders and we went through all of the songs. I didn't, they did, but we went through all of the songs and reconsidered the songs that we're singing. 
and not singing of ourselves and not singing of what we've done for the Lord, but to set those aside and just to focus upon the songs that sing of what God has done for us. Because that's where worship comes from. It comes from a realization of what God has done and continues to do and will do in the future for his people. He has given us the spirit as a guarantee that he intends to fulfill his word. So Solomon, in recognizing the blessings of God and declaring the blessings of God, well, when he recognizes the blessings of God, he's recognizing what Nathan the prophet said would happen, that King David would not be able to build the temple, but that Solomon would. And as that prophecy has come to pass, he's realizing how good God is. And then there's the declaration of the blessings of God and the verses that I've just read, and that he realizes it was God who selected David to rule Israel. And as he selected David, or just as surely as he selected David, he realizes God has selected him as well. God placed it upon David's heart to build the temple, and that was passed through to him, and again, there it is. It would not be David who would build that temple. It would be Solomon. And again, God has been faithful to that. And then it's that day that is before them. They're seeing it all come to pass. Rejoice. Learn to rejoice in your life when you see, and even the small things, the things that God said that he would do, when you see them come to pass, It's a blessing here at the church because I have got good perspective on the various ministries and and seeing God work in the various ministries and and just seeing somebody who has a vision for something and a desire and God has placed it upon their heart for particular work within a ministry, whatever it might be. And then to see God fulfill that. We had our our, uh, Halloween outreach and people got saved and it was just a blessing to be able to see that and that God gave us promises. He spoke to people. People got together and did this work and God blessed it. Yesterday, I I don't get too involved in the woman's thing because it's a woman's thing. That's my wife, but it was just a blessed time here yesterday to see this place filled with women who desire to, to worship God. Jeanette came, Jeanette Walls from Calvary Chapel Upland, and shared and preached the word. And it was just a neat thing to see all of everybody's work and effort all come together. The ladies that were here on Friday night that were decorating and just putting it all together and seeing God move in a very good, glorious, and real way. It's just an exciting thing. And my point in all of this is, is don't ever lose perspective of it. Even in your life, just the little things, just the, the little things that God does. Hey, big things will even better, but, but, but recognize just the little details of your life and the things that God does, just so you know and understand that God still cares and God is still active in your life. And find an excitement about that. Because if you don't, you just become apathetic about it and you become hard-hearted about it. And you become somebody who is very unpleasant. And I don't mean with others, although that's true, but even within your own relationship with Jesus Christ. Be excited about Christ in your life. It's such a great thing. I've seen the foundation of this temple. Solomon said it would stand forever. Unfortunately, Israel did not have a heart for the Lord, his future descendants. But parts of it are still there. I've touched the Western Wailing Wall. It's still there, that wall that was there during Solomon's day. Again, I've mentioned it before, but there is a 
tour that they give you, you go up around and you come underneath and you go along the foundation of the western wall. There are rocks almost the size of this section of chairs, you know, like a dumpster, those big dumpsters about that size. There's huge rocks that have been carved and fit into the bedrock there and you just see the permanence of it all. And I don't know what they're going to do when they do rebuild the temple. The Bible tells us that that's going to happen, but that foundation is there. And that foundation continues to exist. And God's got future plans, and they are going to come to pass. It's one of the amazing things. Even that, Now, we don't worship this rocks, and the, we don't worship the temple. We worship nobody else but Jesus Christ. But it's an amazing thing just to be able to touch these stones and realize the magnitudes of people throughout the ages who have been there the people that were carving on these things. And it's amazing how squared off and how smooth they are, just the workmanship that went into these things. These things happened during Solomon's day. And as we saw in one of our first Peter studies, where did they do this? They did this not up there. They did it down below to the specifications, and then they brought them up. So just think of that. If you have a This huge rock that is from that wall to about here, about eight feet wide and about eight feet high. It weighs tons. I don't know how many tons it weighs, but it weighs tons. And they say, okay, we need this carved to the specification. So they go down there and they chisel on it all by hand. And then they got to bring that thing up, however they did that, set it in place. And if it's off just a little bit, they need to take it back out, send it back down, make the adjustments on it, and bring it back up and set it back in place. So can you imagine the detail and the effort that was necessary for what was going to be built? All the mindset is we are doing this as unto the Lord. There they knew that this was going to be a dwelling place for their God. The proof back then of the existence and the ability of God is the same that it is today. It all boils down to the presence of the Holy Spirit who confirms and seals the promises of God. John sixteen seven. Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, and that would be the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So you have the Old Testament scriptures that spoke of Jesus' coming, of Messiah's coming. Messiah came. He fulfilled the word of God in every detail of his life. There were the signs and the wonders, the miracles that he worked that people knew that there was just something special about him. Even those who who didn't believe, even those who don't believe today still realize there was something special about him. He was crucified in fulfillment of prophecy, but many people were crucified of the day. He was brought back to life. Nobody's ever been able to do that one. Uh, They're still doubters, but nonetheless, he was raised on the third day, as the scripture said, that he would be raised. And then he ascended to heaven. And there were many eyewitnesses, both of his resurrection and of his ascension. But the major proof that we see today, you should be able to look in the mirror and see the proof of the reality of Jesus Christ is that you have the Holy Spirit. Do you care for the Lord and the things of the Lord? Does the sin of this world, does it grieve you? When you see somebody who is lost, spiritually speaking, does it break your heart? that that person is so lost in such such despair, whatever it might be. That's all proofs of the existence of the Holy Spirit and the reality of who Jesus Christ is and the truthfulness of God's word. 
And so just as they were celebrating back then, you should have a heart of celebration as well when you come to, once again, a realization and awareness of these things. Next we see in this ceremony is an adoration, verses 12 through 15. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord. Now when he's standing before the altar of the Lord, the altar is the place where the sacrifice was made. This is the place, keep in mind, it's important as we go on, this is the place where sin was dealt with. Now, the only one who's able to wash away sins, take away sins, is Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death upon the cross. But there was that altar, and if you've been with us long enough, you know that that altar was the place where sins were covered. They were just covered until Christ came and died so that they can be done away with. But nonetheless, this is the place where sins were dealt with. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. These things weren't done in secret or private. It was done for all to see. And it says, and he spread out his hands. For Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and set it in the midst of the court. And he stood on it, knelt down on his knees before the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hand towards Israel. And the idea is just this sign of surrendering to God. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven or on earth like you. You keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all of their hearts. You have kept what you have promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. So Solomon stands and then kneels on this bronze platform and offers prayer to the Lord. This is an act of humility. Bronze is a picture, the metal is symbolic of judgment. It was a bronze altar in which the sacrifice was made. And so what is Solomon doing? Solomon's doing what the Apostle Paul has commanded us to do. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. He says it's the least we can do. It's our reasonable service. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And that's what Solomon is doing. He's just offering himself as a sacrifice or giving of himself for God's usage. And as Solomon is obviously the king, he's representative of all the people. And the idea is is this nation is recognizing not just God as theirs, but them as God's. It's important to understand that. It's one thing to recognize that we are God's, but it's also another thing to recognize that God is ours. And again, you have that perfect unification, that perfect illustration of relationship between God and his people. We so think, though, of this temple as a place of sacrifice, which it was, but the word of God and Jesus Christ both referred to it as a house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus made mention of it in Matthew 21, 13, but I'm going to read from Isaiah 56, verse 7. It says, Even then I will bring to my holy mountain, that would be Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house, that temple, shall be called a house of prayer 
for all nations. Verse 8, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. So this wasn't just to be Israel. This was to be a place for all people who desired to worship God through the giving of sacrifice, but the open door of prayer. Because it's important to understand that it's the sacrifice of bulls and goats, as I said before, covered sin. But it is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as it did away with sin. But either way, what it did is it opened the doors for our prayers to be heard. Now, usually when we pray, now this is not necessary to say at the end of your prayer. I do it and... Most people do do it, but we'll pray a prayer and we'll say, in the name of Jesus. You don't have to say, in the name of Jesus. It's a reminder, though, because the only way that your prayers are heard in heaven, in the throne room of God, is because of Jesus Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus. What does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? Once again, somebody's name in the scripture, it makes reference to the nature and the essence of that person. The nature, he's had a sinless nature. His essence, he is God. And Lord God has made the sacrifice so that our sins now are able to be heard. The only prayer of the unbeliever that God hears is a prayer of repentance. Other than that, God's ear is closed to the person who is not born again. We're told in Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 2, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Proverbs 28, 9, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And so this temple, Solomon's understanding, he's realizing this is going to open the door. We're now able to commune with God. We're now able to have this this place that is in the midst of us that when I make sacrifice, when we stumble, when we fall, when we trespass, when we willfully sin, we can come, we can make the sacrifice, and we can approach God based upon God's grace and God's mercy and the sacrificial death. In that case, it would have been the sacrifice. In our case, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the writer of Hebrews tells us that we can boldly enter into the temple, uh, the, the throne, I'm sorry, the throne room of God. What does it mean to boldly enter into the throne room of God? Well, one day, again, to be absent from the body, we are going to be present with the Lord. But as for today, that's in a spirit of prayer. Even though you're a sinner, even though you have failed time and time again and will fail from this day on, because of the grace of God and the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Father's ear is always toward you. We need to have a repentant spirit. We need to understand these great things that God has done. Nevertheless, God desires to hear from us, and he's opened that door through the Lord Jesus Christ. Next is a prayer of supplications. Prayer of supplication is a prayer of need. And first, what Solomon does is he offers general petitions in verses 16 through 21. It says, Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you performed, your servant David, my father, saying, you, or promised my servant, your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel 
Only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk in my law as you have walked before me. And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry of the prayer which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be open towards this temple day and night towards the place where you said you would put your name, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. And may you hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, hear from heaven your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. Notice Solomon is keeping focused on the future, that future blessings would not get lost in a current excitement. Because see, really the establishment of this temple, it sets them for future greatness in the Lord. At least it has that potential. And that my sins, I've got this place that my sins can always, I mean, think of it as from the perspective of the ruler. I have this place where my sins can always be dealt with. And because my sins are always able to be dealt with, I have the ear of God in all the decisions that I do. And again, you need to bring that through to us in the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God always wants to do a new thing, and he's wanting to move this nation forward, obviously because Messiah is going to come through them. Also, it's not that Solomon thinks that God won't keep his promise, that he'll change his mind or forget to do what he says, but notice here he's encouraging God to do what he said. This isn't to get God on Solomon's page or to keep God accountable. This is a reminder to the people that God is going to do it, and it needs to be a desire of our heart. Go, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Jesus is going to come according to his timetable, and I don't want him to come a moment sooner than what he makes the determination and when he is going to come. But it is a desire of my heart, as he said he was going to come, that he would come and that we would see his promise fulfilled. Love to see it fulfilled in my life, but I don't know and I don't understand God's plan. In verses 16 and 17, you can equate that desire of Solomon's heart to Revelation 22:20. 20. He who testifies of these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen, or so be it. He says, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And the idea is, is God's people getting on the same page as God. Verse 18, But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. He's just amazed that God has responded to the humble offerings that he's made. Now, this was a grand and glorious temple. It was probably the most ornate building of its time, and some have said even of all time. The gold that was used and the silver and the bronze that was used to build it is innumerable. But nonetheless, he realized, compared to the riches of God, this is absolutely nothing. We always have to be of the mindset. We have to remember what it is that we're offering to God. Even the best that we can do personally or corporately, it pales in comparison in what God is able to do. So just think of God. He, he's always able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. But he's made the determination to use you and your humble efforts. I walk by children's ministry. Before I came out here, 
there was a group of people that were leading worship to the kids in there. And the kids were worshiping. And it was just kind of a neat thing. And God has taken their humble efforts and used that in the life of a child. My daughters were leading worship here yesterday. My twin daughters, I don't remember how old they are because I never remember those things. You can ask my wife next time you see her. Uh, they're about 33, somewhere about there. And um, they, can still, they can still recite the songs that they heard when they were young kids because somebody offered that to the Lord by ministering to the kids. And as they did so, it's just amazing. Isn't there something special about music? I remember, I, I, can, re, I can sing to you, I'm not going to, but I can sing to you the jingles in commercials from the 60s. You know, and, and, and they just, they just kind of embed in your mind. I won't say them because I don't want to implant that into your mind. But there's something special about, now, there's something special about music. That's God-ordained. That's God ordained for the purpose of worshiping. The problem is the devil has come in and hijacked it because you can look at secular music today and some of the disgusting things that are sang about in that. But as far as when it comes to worship, it it stays with us. And as it stays with us, just as we're going about that day, it's just a a blessing to have that worship song in in our mind and, and in our hearts. And it's just such a, well, it just shows me that this is of the Lord. And so for Solomon, as he's looking at this temple and realizing the magnitude of the God who he serves, he's realizing that this is nothing compared to God. And for us, it's got to be the same thing. The things that we do is nothing compared to what God is able to do. But God, God does use us. And God does honor us as we offer to him. In Psalm 40, verse 17, it says, But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. The Lord thinks upon you. I'm poor and needy. The idea is I've got really nothing to offer him, and I need everything that he has to offer to me. And although I'm, I take effort, although I can be a pain at times, I'm poor and needy, but God thinks upon me. And, and think about that. Of all the people in the world... Uh, of all the people of all the ages, God, Lord God, he thinks of me. He, he thinks of you too. He thinks of us. Not corporately, but he thinks of you individually. Why does he think of you individually? Well, my uh, grandson has been at my house and my daughter and my wife went somewhere. I don't remember where they went. And Chris Mike was sleeping. And so so we're going to go off here. Chris Mike's sleeping. He won't wake up until after we get back, which is what they say, so they can get out of the house because he always wakes up before they get back. But that's okay. I didn't have a problem with that. And so he wakes up, and you know, he's a little irritated, but if you stick a banana in his mouth, he eats that, and he's happy. And so he was doing okay. Then he realized his mother's gone. And as he realized his mother's gone, he's kind of at the door, Mom, Mom. And so I go, you want to go outside? And yeah, and so we, we go outside, and we're walking around, and I said, hey, let's put up the Christmas. You want to see the lights? And yeah, so we put up the Christmas lights while they're gone and, and the whole thing. But you got to constantly be paying attention to him. He got on one of the little cart things and that's in the garage, and he pushed it, and he's going down the driveway. And if you keep going down the driveway, he's going to shoot out into the street. And so you you, you got to be constantly thinking about him because he's constantly getting himself in trouble and putting himself in peril. That's the same reason that God constantly thinks about you. He's constantly thinking about you, because you're no different than a two-year-old sometimes. We're constantly getting ourselves in trouble, constantly putting ourselves in peril. But I have a God, we have a God, who thinks of us. 
verses 19 through 21. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication. Supplication is a prayer for need. O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be open towards this temple day and night, towards the place where you said you will put your name, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place, and that you may hear the supplications of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place, hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear... Forgive. It's his desires that God's eyes would be constantly towards his people, that they would constantly have the attention of his holy God, but also notice in his prayers that the people's eyes would be dedicated or uh, directed towards him. That this temple is really, he's realizing, a place of tangency. And what I mean by a place of tangency, it's this meeting place that God meets his people at that temple and his people meet God. And again, it's the same thing that happens here. God meets me individually, but I also have to realize that I need to meet him. And this is a personal thing that happens deep within our hearts. So when times are tough, when doubt diminishes desire, when you seem to be constantly confused, look to the temple. Look to the temple and see who dwells there and understand that God is with you. This is what worked for Jonah when he was in that big fish. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. It's what Daniel did even when he was held captive in a foreign land in Daniel 6.10. Now Daniel knew what the writing was signed. He went home and in his upper room with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before God as was his custom since the early days. And... Psalm 42, I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but this was what really got to this man, Korah. This man, Korah, David had a worship leader, Korah, and his descendants were the worship leaders. Well, in Psalm 42, more than likely, it speaks of the time of Babylonian captivity when the Babylonians were taking some of the Jews captive and bringing them back to Babylon. And Psalm 42 is from the perspective of this man, Korah. And the idea is he's being led captive and he looks back at the temple or at least the temple mount. And he's realizing or he's remembering the days when he used to go and he used to be able to lead worship in the midst of the congregation. He remembers the fellowship that he had with each other and the fellowship that he had with God. Sometimes we don't realize exactly what we have until it's gone. Lord, help us to value one another. Help us to value this place. And I'm talking about our, our church, but not so much the place, but the people. And value one another and the fellowship that we're able to have with one another. See, where Solomon really understood this concept of intercessory prayer and this spirit of forgiveness, again in verse 21, and may you hear the supplications of your servant and your people Israel when they pray towards this place, hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. What he knows is based upon what God's word tells us. He knows the nature and the essence of his God. He knows the nature and the essence of his people. And he knows that man is set towards sin continually. But he knows that God is long-suffering with mankind. 
in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 through 28, there was a warning given. It says, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today to go after other gods which you have not known. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 3, Now it came to pass, when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord God and obey his voice according to all that I have commanded you today, you and your children, with all of your heart and all of your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord has scattered you. God has brought us into his holy congregation. Every person here who's a born-again believer, God has had compassion upon you. And yet while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. God called you out of darkness and has brought you into his marvelous light. And in that we see the nature and the essence of God. God doesn't love me any more than he loves you or loves you any more than he loves me. We're all his children. And as we are all his children, we should gain a confidence, but also a desire for obedience in that. A holy house, a holy house will be a house of prayer. Are you a house? We are to be a house that is sanctified, that is separated from the world, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and dedicated to the usage of God. Father, once again, just as we saw that temple, Lord, and how that temple was used, and and Father, just how glorious it was, but it was just for a period of time, because after a period of time, your people did turn their backs to you, and they even had the audacity to bring idols into that temple at certain times. Father, I pray, as much as depends upon us, that we would live lives of purity before you. When we fail, when we stumble and fall, I pray, Father, that we would be quick to repent. And it's what we're going to see in Chronicles as we move on. We'll see bad kings. We'll see good kings that did bad things. But the things that set them apart is is that they had a heart to repent. And so, Father, I just thank you that you have given us this night and this section of Scripture. I pray, Father, for those who have come out tonight. I pray that you would go before them in this week to come. I pray, God, that you would do great things in and through us And that God, most of all, you would be glorified through lives that remember first love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Just a couple of things. Sean had mentioned them to you. We still need actors, right, for the play. We need a Joseph and a who? And a wise man. I don't know if we have any wise people here, but uh, we at least need Joseph. I think there's only one line that they need to memorize each. And so if, uh, just elementary age school kids, um, if you have one or you know one, that would be a blessing. Uh, on the 16th, again, we're going to be having an outreach. I'll be giving an evangelical message. I encourage you to, uh, to consider who it is that you invite to come and to see a Christmas play and see what the Lord will do in their lives. Um, Christmas schedules in the bulletin. Other than that, God bless you guys. Have a great week. We're back in Second Chronicles next Sunday night. God is great, right? Amen. We're, yeah, we're going to end with a, a little bit of a slower song, so it's a little different. But I just want to use it even for myself, even just as an encouragement that our souls would just continue 
singing his praises that our souls, that our lives would just cry out, great are you, Lord, even when we pass through these church doors. So just join us in um, proclaiming his greatness.
God bless you guys. Have a good rest of your... Oh, have a good week. <laughs>